We are in First uh, Peter this morning. Just before we get into First Peter, I uh, just want to recommend a book to you again. Uh, Read the Bible for Life, Your Guide to Understanding and Living God's Word. We were selling it in the Resource Center, sold out. We've got some more copies there for you. I recommend it to you. It's a great guide to help you in your own study of the Scriptures. And then secondly, um, prayer training. We started uh, a series of studies on prayer this last Wednesday. Uh, we're meeting in the Youth Center 2. Uh, a wonderful group came out. We worshiped together. We studied the scriptures. We prayed together. We'll continue this Wednesday at 6.30. And uh, come after work. The cafe is open. You can get a meal for $5. It's a great deal. And then come down for prayer training. It's so that we grow in prayer and can participate in prayer ministry. So, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 20. I heard a speaker say the other day that to be a disciple of Jesus is to live in the real world, and that's exactly the title of our series, Living in the Real World. Living in the real world, we face real questions. Here are a few real questions. What do we do as disciples of Jesus when we are shamed by those living around us. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus in your family if you're being shamed there? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus in the workplace? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus in a society where your belief in Jesus may not be honored? These were critical questions in the first century. They are critical questions in our day as well. What was the original context of 1 Peter? Well, Peter, he writes this letter probably in the early 60s, just before the persecution promoted by the emperor Nero. He writes to people that are living in the Roman provinces of Bithynia and Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia. He's living, he's writing to people living in a world where the Roman and Greek gods are to be worshipped. That's what's expected. The emperor is to be worshipped. If you do not worship the Roman gods, if you do not worship the Roman emperor, then you are considered to be a danger, a threat to society. Those that are disciples of Jesus, again, as I said, there probably isn't systematic, widespread persecution, but those that are disciples of Jesus, they're suffering from religious discrimination. There are social consequences, psychological consequences. There are financial implications. Because they do not abide by the belief system of the majority, they are slandered. They are considered to not be acting in the honorable way. They're going through difficulties. Peter, he talks about three spheres of life. He talks about relating to those that do not believe in Jesus. He talks about relating to those in political authority, how do you relate to the emperor and to governors, to those in authority over you? And he talks about relationships with masters. He speaks specifically to slaves. But what he says to slaves is relevant for us as well. In each section, in each sphere, we'll ask two questions. What is the text actually saying? And then secondly, why should we do what is being commanded. And then we'll end the message by trying to answer a third question, how? How is it even possible to live in the way commanded? 
The main point of the message is, by honoring everyone, we honor God. We honor everyone because God has honored us. We honor everyone because God has honored us. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. 1 Peter 2, 11. Beloved, could be translated dear friends. And when we read this word, we should recognize that Peter is beginning a new section of the letter. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What are the verses saying? Well, the key command is very clear. Keep your conduct honorable. What does it mean to be honorable? Well, to be honorable is to do what's desired, what is esteemed, what is considered to be right. As a disciple of Jesus, what is honorable for you? Well, Peter has already said in this letter, be holy as God is holy. So God defines what it means for us to be honorable. We are to be like God, who is unchangeably good and he hates evil. Where are we to be honorable? Well, Peter says among the Gentiles, among those that do not worship the true God. It's in the real world that we are to be honorable. He talks about the disciples as being sojourners, exiles. Those were common words in the Roman Empire. A sojourner was just someone that was away from home. An exile was a, a temporary resident. So this word exile was used for a person that was not living in his or her place of origin. Their allegiance was to another kingdom. They went, uh, uh, lived by other customs, other values. They were not citizens of Rome. So Paul, or sorry, Peter is not using these words sojourner and exile in a literal sense. He's communicating by using these words that the disciples of, of, of Jesus that are living in the Roman provinces, they just don't feel at home in the Roman Empire because they are first and foremost children of God. They are members of the family of faith. They're a part of that chosen race, that holy nation that Peter talks about. That's where their identity lies. What are they to do? Well, again, it's clear. They are to honor God among those who do not know God. They are to honor God among those who do not know God. Why? Verse 11. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That word passions, it refers to strong desires. Any form of self-seeking behavior to secure your identity through wealth, through status, or power. Any form of self-seeking behavior in relationships. And Peter talks about this in chapter 2, verse 1. Malice, envy, slander. Any form of behavior that... (coughs) is self-seeking in relationship. And thirdly, any form of self-gratifying behavior in the realm of sexuality. He talks about this explicitly in chapter 4. These are all sinful ways to fabricate honor, to secure your identity 
based on your own desires. They wage war against your soul, Peter says. And when he says that, he's talking about an ongoing war. So why do you not yield to the passions of your flesh? Well, first of all, unrestrained passion will kill you. You avoid it not just to save face in society, but because it will actually destroy you. Destroy you spiritually, emotionally, mentally, relationally. As I said, this word wage war, it refers to an ongoing battle. The scriptures talk about a war with the flesh, the passions of the flesh. It talks about the world around us influencing us. It talks about the spiritual enemy of our souls, the devil, who wants to destroy us. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Sorry, beginning in verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now we're at verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. That last phrase, malign you. It could be translated in this way. When you do not enter into their madness, they shame you. They treat you as if something is actually wrong with you. They let you know that you don't belong. Not only do those that practice these kinds of things at times malign us, but we have a spiritual enemy who actually wants to destroy us. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So when we yield to the passions of the flesh, we open the door for the enemy to devour us. His declared intent is to destroy us. We should not be naive. Yielding to the passions of our flesh will sap our spiritual life rob us of our joy in Jesus, steal our hope, it will destroy us. One of the most vulnerable moments, I believe, is that moment when we believe that for whatever reason, that God is not keeping his word, that he is not keeping his promises. When we yield to the lie that God is just not going to carry us through our disappointment, when we don't see justice being done, when we no longer believe that God is acting as he should, in that moment of vulnerability, we try to secure our identity in another place or through another person. We try to find a sense of belonging somewhere other than God. We try to satisfy our desires because we just have come come to believe that God is not enough. That's the dangerous moment. That's the vulnerable moment. Peter is reminding his readers that the passions of the flesh will not give life. They will actually destroy his readers. Is it only to preserve our own souls that we act in an honorable way? No. We act in an honorable way so that others will see God. Disciples of Jesus, as I've already said, were being maligned. They were being shamed because they didn't embrace the belief system, the ethic of the majority. 
The Roman Empire was an honor and shame world. If you were honored, you had value in society. If you had a low public rating, well, then you were shamed. You were dishonored. Each person was expected to protect family, village, empire, honor. If you changed your belief, if, for example, you decided to follow Jesus, you endangered the family, you endangered the village, you endangered the emperor, empire. You were expected to just live according to social expectations. Tacitus, a Roman historian, he considered Christians to be a race to be detested for their evil practices. They were considered to be wrong, plain and simple. They were inflicting pain on their families. They were unloving. So you can imagine, for these disciples of Jesus, they would have asked the question, well, why be honorable toward those that treat us so badly? Why not just resist them? (laughs) Why not respond with a verbal attack or even respond physically? Or maybe, because the social pressure is so great, because we're being shamed into conformity, why not just privatize our faith? Just be quiet. Be quiet at home. Be quiet in the workplace. Assimilate. Peter says, among the Gentiles, be honorable. We face the same temptations as those first century Christians faced, right? Our suffering in Canada is not so much physical as it is psychological. It is social. Canada is actually changing in its culture. It's becoming much more of an honor-shame society than it has ever been. What will it mean to be Christian as we move forward, as we continue to hear the message that we are on the wrong side of history, that for whatever reason, we have just not evolved with the stream of world history? Will we know what it means to remain grounded in Jesus? Peter says, among the Gentiles, be honorable, verse 12, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. To see is to observe carefully. It's to watch over a period of time. So people are watching these disciples. They consider what they believe. They reflect on that. It's interesting how people always watch strangers more closely, right? If you're the only Christian in your family, you're being observed. If you're the only Christian in the workplace, then you're being observed. If you're the only Christian family in your neighborhood, you're being observed. People always watch strangers more closely. Peter here, he alludes to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
So going back to 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter is saying, act in an honorable way before those who do not know the true God so that they can see God. Your good deeds will reveal the character of God. You'll be like Jesus. Jesus was present on earth. God made flesh. When people looked at him, they saw God unveiled. The calling on our lives is the same. We may be shamed where we live, but as we do good, the glory of God will be revealed. As we honor those around us, the character of God will be revealed. People will see God. They will consider who God is. They will consider why we live the way we do. Peter says they'll glorify God on the day of visitation. That means on the day of Christ's return. As we do good, they'll be drawn to the Holy, drawn by the Spirit to consider Jesus. And on the day of Christ's return, they will give glory to God. Why? Because they've become followers of Jesus. So why do we honor God? Well, your God-honoring life will lead others to honor God. That's why. As I pray for Willingdon, I imagine members, attendees of Willingdon fanning out from these weekend services. You go to your homes, you go to your places of work, you go to your places of recreation, you go to your schools. In some settings, your faith is questioned. In some settings, your faith is challenged. You may even be mocked for being a disciple of Jesus. In some settings, you are shamed, you are dishonored, you are belittled. Be encouraged. Your God-honoring way of life, it brings glory to God even now in your current circumstances. And it will bring glory to God on the day of Christ's return. Be encouraged. And remember what Hebrews said, God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and your love. God sees you. Be encouraged. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Again, the key command is very clear. Be subject to every human institution. What that means is be subject to institutions envisioned, created, led by human beings. What are the disciples of Jesus to do in the real world? Well, it's clear. Submit to political authorities. Submit to political leadership. They are to submit and honor, submit to and honor the emperor. Submit to and honor the governors. What was the context? Well, here's an example. Pliny, he was a governor of a Roman province, Bithynia and Pontus. He wrote a letter to the emperor Trajan in the year 112 A.D., he asks for counsel on how to deal with Christians. This account is important because it is the first Roman account, the first pagan account that refers to Christianity. 
And it provides key information on how Christians were viewed, how they were treated. The letter details how Pliny conducts trials of suspected Christians. He asks the emperor for counsel. I'll read from the letter. Nor am I at all sure whether it is the mere name of Christian which is punishable, even if innocent of crime, or rather the crimes associated with the name. I have asked them in person if they are Christians, and if they admit it, I repeat the question a second and third time, with the warning of the punishment awaiting them. If they persist, I order them to be led away for punishment, for whatever the nature of their admission, I am convinced that stubbornness and unshakable obstinacy ought not to go unpunished. It's interesting that neither Pliny nor Trajan mentions the crime committed. The only crime committed is that they are a Christian, that they do not worship the Roman gods. They do not worship the Roman emperor. And so they're considered to be a threat to the social order. They're being shamed into conformity. And God says be subject to that kind of leadership? What does be subject mean? Well, at the heart of the word submission is the word order. Every time that we submit to human authority, we are recognizing the divine ordering of life. We recognize that God is the true source of all authority and all honor. In the ordering of human life, God has established political authority. All people have equal dignity before God. All people are created in the image of God, male and female. Politicians and citizens, masters and slaves, all created in the image of God. But within society, people have different roles. Of course, the supreme example of submission is Jesus himself. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now this is at the center of our faith. When Jesus took on the role of a servant, he voluntarily submitted to the Father's will. He offered himself as a gift for our restoration. Ultimately, it meant death on a cross, a brutal shaming at the hands of Roman authorities and Jewish authorities. He did not become less divine when he hung on the cross. He did not become less honorable, less equal because he was shamed. He entrusted himself to the Father who judges justly, Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.23. His identity was grounded in the Father. He knew where he came from. He knew where he was going. He knew where his identity was grounded. He knew his purpose. So firstly, when you and I submit as disciples of Jesus, we do it for the Lord's sake. We do it because of Jesus, because we are followers of Jesus. To be a follower of Jesus means that we are like him. We submit because we've been chosen for obedience to Jesus. That's the way that Peter begins his letter. As we voluntarily submit to political authority, we radiate the glory of God. This is one of the first lessons 
in our discipleship journeys, submitting to leadership, to human authority. And sometimes we will think that leadership is misguided. Sometimes we will think that leadership is inadequate. I remember as a young missionary in Brazil thinking that the leadership of the mission and those in church authority in Brazil were misguided. (laughs) That they just were not discerning things correctly. And I had to make a choice. Would I submit to authority or would I choose my own way? Would I be able to submit to authority recognizing that God is the true source of all authority and honor or would I seek to establish my own honor in my own way? We all face that in different ways throughout our discipleship journey. And if we don't learn the lesson, we just keep bumping up against it. Every time we submit to anyone, it is in recognition of who God is, the supreme authority. Secondly, you submit because by doing good, verse 15, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. You actually silence the foolish by your good conduct. And and doing good here has the sense of doing more than is expected. It's going the second mile. In one Southeast Asian country, the church is being persecuted. Pastors are often imprisoned. And recently, one of the governors in that country, he approached a pastor. He says, I've noticed something in the villages where there are Christians. There is more social harmony. There is less work for the police. How do I get more Christians in the villages under my authority? (laughs) Interesting question. In a country where the church is considered to be an enemy of the state, where the church is marginalized, where pastors are persecuted and imprisoned, a governor recognizes that those who follow Jesus do good. As we do good, we silence the foolish. Every time we do good, we follow the prophetic word that's given by the Spirit through Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29, verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. This was written to Jewish exiles in Babylon. Wherever we are on the planet, no matter what the city, we seek the welfare of the city. In verse 17 of 1 Peter chapter 2, there's a a summary statement. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. So we honor, honor all people. We respect all people. Love the brotherhood. In a world where the church finds itself on the margins, the importance of loving one another as children of God is even more important. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. The only one to be feared is God. He is the only one to be revered. We stand in awe of only one, God. Honor the emperor. Give him his due respect. Why? Verse 16 says, live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. That word servants is actually slaves, as slaves of God. You see, Jesus, he submitted to the Father's leadership in all that he said, all that he did. He was enslaved to the Father's will. He lived fully for God's honor. Because he knew that his Father was the true source of all authority and honor. And so as followers of Jesus, we live as slaves of God. 
We serve him out of fear, out of awe, out of love. What an honor. You know, every person on the planet is enslaved to someone or something. Everyone serves someone or something. So if we are going to be enslaved to someone or something, why not God? (laughs) Why not be enslaved to the one who rules over all things, who is the supreme source of authority and honor? Why would we choose to honor or be enslaved to anyone else? When we are slaves of God, we are truly free. We are submitting to the highest authority. And so why do we submit to political leadership? Well, so that we might be free. So we might might live free as slaves of God. Charles Colson, famous American in recent decades, passed away in 2012. Charles Colson and Benigno Aquino, a Filipino, they were on a plane flying to Washington. Both men had been shamed in their countries in different ways. Colson, of course, he was imprisoned after Watergate, experienced that shaming. They're in prison, read the scriptures, came to faith in Jesus. Many people doubted his faith initially. They wondered if he wasn't just trying to save face before the American public. But as he journeyed with Jesus, it was perceived more and more that his faith was truly authentic. He began to write books about his Christian experience. Aquino was on the plane with Colson, and he recognized him. He approached Colson. Aquino had been imprisoned as well. He was imprisoned in the Philippines because of his political views. He was imprisoned by Ferdinand Marcos. Uh, Aquino was in prison for seven years. During his time in prison, he was gifted with a book. The title of the book, Born Again written by Charles Colson. Aquino, he devoured that book. He read that book into the wee hours of the morning. He couldn't put it down. And before sunrise, he had finished the book and he had given his heart to Jesus. Received a new identity. Sometime later, he was released from prison and exiled to the United States. Some would say that it was a self-imposed exile. So here we have Colson and Aquino on the same plane. Aquino approaches Colson and he says to Colson, Hey, I'm thinking of returning to the Philippines. And Colson says, I'm not sure that that's advisable because Marcos does not treat his opponents very well. And this is how Aquino responded I quote, Only three things can happen. One, Marcos may decree democratic elections and I'll be elected. Two, I may be imprisoned. And if I am, I'll start a Bible study group. Three, I may die. And if I do, I'll be with Jesus. And of course, Aquino returned to Manila and died at the airport. You know, no matter what your station in life, whether you are president or a prisoner, whether you are a master or a slave, whether you are male or female, 
If you are with Jesus, you are eternally free. You are free. As a disciple of Jesus, you may be shamed publicly. You may be shamed at home. You may be shamed at work. You may be shamed on the streets. You may be shamed by the government. But if you are a slave of God, you are eternally free. Peter now shifts to master-slave relationships. Verse 18. 1 Peter 2, verse 18. Servants... Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while it's suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Again, what is the text saying? It's very clear. The, the key command is very clear. Subject, be subject to your mas- masters. Submit to human masters, even those who dishonor you. What was the context? Well, in the Roman Empire, about one-third of the population was enslaved. There were about 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. It was accepted. Slaves were the workforce. Slaves were considered to be an integral part of the family, of the household. For centuries, Greek moral philosophers, they wrote about the household. Plato, Aristotle, Seneca. They wrote about proper relationships between a husband and a wife, between children and parents, between masters and slaves. Each person's role in the household was divinely mandated. Wise people, they just conformed to social expectations. Wives, children, slaves, they submitted to male authority. Wives, children, slaves, they worshipped the gods of the male authority of the household. That was just the way it was. It was done that way to ensure financial stability, to ensure the well-being of the household. They believed this to be right and true. The household was considered to be the basis of society. If you wanted an orderly, strong, prosperous society, then you followed social expectations. No religion entering the Roman Empire would be able to escape this reality. The need to understand what it meant to be a follower of Jesus in a Roman world. Disciples of Jesus would, know how to, would need to know how to conduct themselves as husbands and wives, as children and parents, as masters and slaves. Some Greeks, they viewed slaves as property. They were just possessions with a soul. Romans did not treat them in the same way. They considered them to be persons, but the law protected them in no way. Masters, they had extensive authority over their slaves. They exploited their slaves. They abused their slaves. They punished their slaves with beatings, with imprisonments, with sale into, sale into harsher servitude. And it was considered to be right and good. So you can imagine a Christian slave asking the question, be subject to all masters? Peter writes here, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. 
Christian slaves are be, to be subject even to cruel and harsh masters. Why? Well, the first point may seem very obvious, but it was revolutionary at that time. Because you have the capacity and authority to make a choice. You have the capacity and authority to make a choice. Remember, they were not considered as persons by the Greeks. They were not given any rights by the Romans, but they had the capacity and authority to make a choice in Jesus. Secondly, by enduring in the face of suffering, there would be a clear evidence of God's grace in their lives. Why submit to masters? Because endurance in the face of suffering is evidence of God's grace. When you endure suffering for being good, it is clear evidence of the grace of God, of Christ-like character, of the work of the Spirit in your life. It is commendable before God. It receives God's favor and blessing. William J. Seymour, he was born in Louisiana. William J. Seymour, his parents were slaves. They were freed from slavery. William J. Seymour, early in life, he suffered from smallpox. He was blind in one eye. In his teen years, he came to faith in Jesus. He decided to go to Bible school. In Bible school, he had to sit outside of the classroom because he was black. But he persevered. Evidence of God's grace in his life. And now historians, as they look back on history, they consider him to be the founder of the Azusa Street Revival. And no matter what your theological perspective, what happened through Azusa Street has impacted the global church. I only tell that story to say that God honors those who are shamed. How is it possible for us to maintain a sense of honor to be honorable when we are being shamed by those around us. If we are being shamed in our families, if we are being shamed in the workplace, if we are shamed in society, how do we maintain a sense of honor? Well, it's in the first chapters of Peter, these chapters that we have studied. And the answer is this. God, the supreme authority... The source of all true authority and honor has honored you. God chose you to be his child. He chose to honor you. He chose you to be holy. He chose you to be transformed by the Spirit. He chose you to be born to a living hope. He chose you for obedience to Jesus. He chose you to be guarded by his own power. You have been privileged with revelation, Peter says, a revelation that the prophets longed to look into. You are a living stone in God's spiritual house. You have been made alive in Christ, the Spirit abides in you. You are grounded in Jesus, the chief cornerstone. And according to Peter, you will never be put to shame if you trust in Jesus. Jesus took on our shame so that we might be set free, 
so that we might be honored in God, so that we might be full members of the household of God, full members of the family of faith, so that we might truly be a part of this chosen race, this holy nation, treasured possession of God. So how do we live out what Peter writes about here? Well, we live out of honor. (laughs) We've been honored by the true source of honor, God himself. God has honored us with a new identity in Jesus. We belong to God. We belong to the people of God. And so as we experience shame, whether it be in at home, in our family, whether it be in the workplace or wherever we might be, even if we are shamed by political authorities, we walk in honor because of God. God has honored us. We're grounded in him. We honor because we have been honored by the supreme source of all honor, God himself. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for prayer. So, Father, we just come before you and admit that it is hard for us to submit. Our flesh fights against that. It's hard for us to submit to authority. And so we pray for the grace, first of all, to submit completely to you to yield ourselves to you, to recognize, Lord, that you are the supreme source of all authority and honor. May we come to an understanding of what it means to be your children, to be honored by you, to be full heirs of your kingdom, to be your sons and daughters adopted into your family, to have you as our Father. What an honor. Thank you for new life in you, Jesus. Thank you for sending your Spirit to abide in us. Thank you that you are present to teach us what this means. These principles that you have laid out for us, Lord, I thank you that by your spirit you can help us understand how to live it in our families, at work, on the streets, in places of recreation, wherever we are. Lord, may we understand who we are in you. May we understand what it means to belong to you now and forever, to know that nothing can separate us from your love. May we understand what it means to walk together as brothers and sisters in you. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.